Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 203. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And today, happy to be joined by Greg Souders. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Steve. How about yourself, my man? Not bad. Thanks so much for coming by, man. You're one of our more frequently requested guests. I've had a whole bunch of people independently say that I need to get you on this show, that the stuff that you're saying is completely aligned with the kind of message that we try to promote. So with that said, though, you're probably better at explaining all this than me. Why don't you just quickly introduce yourself and tell everyone about your work? Oh, for sure. So my name is Greg Souders. I'm a coach and owner of Standard Jiu-Jitsu in Rockville, Maryland. I guess why people are requesting me on here today is just uh, the training methods we're using in our school are different than what's traditionally being used throughout the jiu-jitsu community. And we feel that the methods we're using to help our students acquire skill and increase motor performance are far better than anything that's being utilized currently. Well, let's talk a little bit about that to start with here. When you say that the the methods that other gyms use are are subpar, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, can we describe what the quote unquote regular way of training jujitsu is? And maybe you can start punching some holes in why that method <laughs> is suboptimal. Yeah, no problem. So the traditional method would be something like this. A student comes into a school they do a trial class and maybe they sign up. And then once they sign up, their first day of class is usually a 20 to 25 minute warm up where they're running around the gym, they're jumping over each other, they're rolling and tripping down the mat. And then they circle up and the instructor goes around and explains to them what they're going to be learning today. And then they drill what that thing is statically. They go through a process oriented, step by step approach to learning the skill. And that could last for another 20 minutes. And usually with the last 15 to 20 minutes of class, the students are asked to spar. And that would be your typical class. Now, the issue with that is almost none of it is aligned with how people learn to develop new skills. I mean, warming up, for example, is largely a complete waste of time. Uh, Your body doesn't know the difference between rolling, running, jumping, or even just standing in place and shaking furiously. The synovial fluid, the core temperature, your heart rate will all increase no matter what you do. So, you know, uh, rather than wasting, you know, 20, 25 minutes of a class, having people doing things that are non-jujitsu related seems to me to be a waste of the hour or at least a piece of it. And then to go from the warm up, you have the explanation of techniques that new students are learning. But the issue is that these new students have no idea what's going on. So to start explaining things to them out of context already puts a strange expectation in the mind as to how the movement should or shouldn't be performed. So it's a very disconnected from the reality of actually touching a live resisting body. And then finally, there's very little translation between what the instructor is saying, uh, how they're explaining the technique, and then of course, free sparring. There's a huge gap between a static drill and a live go. And that gap is rarely ever justified by our modern instructor. So that would be an example of how the traditional practice goes and why I think that a few, those are a few reasons why um, I think it fails to do its job. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. What you've described here is what on the podcast we sometimes talked, to, <laughs> talked about is kind of the three-part traditional class structure, which is if you wander into basically any jiu-jitsu gym in the world, there is a very good chance that their out-of-the-box class structure is going to be a third of the class is some sort of calisthenic warm-up where basically you're doing jumping jacks and stuff like that that has minimal, if any, relation to actual jiu-jitsu. And the goal is, in a lot of cases, what they'll say is it's to get your heart warm or you're going or something to that effect. Or maybe they're trying to, to you know, in some cases, if, if they think that it, like it's a competition gym, they might even be trying to burn you out before you even start training. <laughs> then you get to the technique, which is normally, and again, the next third of the class, that comes down to about you know, 20, 30 minutes of what I've heard described as dead drilling, 
which is basically you just repetitively bang off the same pattern over and over again on a non-resisting opponent. And then the last third of the class is the part that everyone actually often wants to do, which is the free rolling. And again, most of the time, no real structure there. Sometimes if your instructor thinks that they're doing a good job, they might try to impose a constraint. Like they might say, we're starting from guard or something like that. But normally it basically devolves into just regular rolling. And what winds up happening in that case is you've got these three parts, like you said, that are very disconnected and none of them really consciously serve the purpose of skill development. For sure. And, and of course, the challenge that we have in the jujitsu community is there's a lot of instructors who walk around and talk like, you know, they're, they're, they're the expert in everything. And they will espouse this method just blindly without realizing that there's really no science or evidence to why you should train this way. It's just a tradition. And it's honestly not a very effective tradition at the end of the day either. 100%. I completely agree. I mean, I think a lot of what we do in this sport is just an accident of history. I don't think it really has any objective basis. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that one area where maybe you're spearheading, and I'd love to talk more about this, is how you're bringing jujitsu methods more in line with what other more mature sports would use, where they take a more science-based approach to, to what works. And I'd love to dig into that. So yeah. if we were to deconstruct this, what does your ideal class structure look like? You know, instead of that classic three-part model, what do you do at your school? Well, it's going to depend on the level of student I'm working with, but I always like to talk about the foundations because without a good foundation, nothing really works well. So for my foundations class, the things that we focus on are what would be the foundational criteria of top and bottom positioning as it relates to both neutrality or neutral positions and dominant positions or pins. And so if you look at jiu-jitsu just as a game, it really only is only a three-part game. There's the standing situation, top and bottom, depending on how you guys are orienting before you hit the floor. There's the guarded situation, top or bottom, however you're orienting. And there's the pin situation, top and bottom. Now, I'm holding submissions out of there because these this submissions are within the whole game. So I'm just kind of excluding that. So for all the generalized behaviors, again, you have the standing situation, top, bottom, the guarded situation, top, bottom, and the pin situation, top, bottom. And so the behaviors we do in each of these you know, three basic situations are going to build the foundation of everything that happens thereafter. So in our basic class, we start off right away with games where the student gets to experience what we would consider to be the foundation of each of those positions. So for example, if we were working, uh, let's say we come in a day and we're working something from the top position. So the two foundational measures of top position, no matter what they are, are stay on top and hold your partner down. So a new student walking in off the street would play a game where the top player would have an objective, some, you know, focus on some task within jiu-jitsu where they would be trying to work within a given top position when their main focus would be staying on top and holding their partner down. And then the bottom would person would be given an objective to either get off the bottom in, in some way with some orientation, or they would try to make the top player fall down and become the bottom player. I can get more specific than that, but that would be like a, a generalized way to discuss how class would start. Got it. So yeah, I'd love to dig into a bit more specific. So you mentioned kind of gamification and gamifying the approach, and this is something I've heard uh, a lot of kind of new age instructors talk about. I'd love to dig into that a bit. For sure. Well, it is a game and you have to play it. Can you imagine saying, going somewhere to say, I want to learn basketball, and the first thing I did was spend an hour describing to you what basketball is? Like, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Just give the kid a ball and let him put it in the hole against other players. I mean, that's really what all sports are. They're games. So why would we have any interaction in a class where we are not playing a game, even a small aspect of it? So I think that the new modern coach realizes that if in order to learn jujitsu, the student has to play jujitsu. So this is why they create these or what would academically be considered a small sided game. And the game itself is what teaches the tactics that emerge from within the grappling system. So, you know, as you play the game, behavior emerges because behavior is an emergent phenomenon when an individual interacts in environments performing tasks. So that's why it's utilized. Got it. Got it. Okay. So maybe some examples, like I, I'd love to dig into this, right? You talked about how in a standard class, the experience is going to be, you roll in, your instructor gets you to do jumping jacks and shrimp down the mat for 20 minutes or whatever. And then they've got usually three moves of the day they bang off the move and then they say monkey see monkey do. And your job as the student is to basically copy and duplicate what your instructor did against a completely non-resisting opponent. And then you go into the last third of the class, which is this part that everyone actually wants to do, which is the rolling. 
how would your class look different? So if I'm especially a day one white belt, right, I, I walk into your class, what do I experience? Well, it depends on what we're learning, but let's use like a, a whole sequence of events. Let's use, let's go from submission to pin. Okay. So typically the first game a student will play, we would call a low variability game. This is an alignment within a given situation where the choices that have to be made are cognitively non-demanding. I mean, of course, it's cognitively demanding, but what I mean is it's not a very complex series of events. So if we were teaching the mounted position, and we want to ultimately work from staying on top, controlling the mount, working into a given submission, and then finishing that submission. This is something we'd want to do in a whole class. So we would start with this idea you've probably heard before, which is starting with the end in mind. So we would start the student within a fully locked arm lock, day one, first time even touching each other. And the top player's job, of course, me as the coach, I would, I would show them what the arm lock situation is. And I would give them a task. I would say, okay, within this situation, you have a head leg, you have a body leg, and you have a hold of your partner's primary arm, the one that you're attacking. And I'd give them an objective. Top player's job is to hold the primary arm so uh, it can't be moved. You're going to use your head leg to hold your partner down and your body leg to hold your partner down to the floor. So use your legs to hold your partner to the floor. Keep their arm connected to you. Don't let them get out of this situation. Go. And we would tell the top per- or excuse me, the bottom person, get off the bottom and try to free your arm any way that you can. We hit the clock for three minutes and we say, if, if anyone succeeds or fails, just restart. And then we go. And so day one, the first time they're touching each other, they're engaged in live scenario within something that's relevant to jiu-jitsu, which would be controlling an arm from the arm lock breaking position. And so each student would have three minutes within this situation to sort of explore success and failure. So they can start developing some physical context for why things are being done. Got it. Got it. And I I would say that probably stands in contrast to the way that most classes teach, which is, again, the instructor is going to sit you down and say, here is the arm bar. Here's 10 steps. Follow them exactly. And then everyone gets two minutes of drilling that they switch back and forth with their partner. And then you move on to the next thing. I, in my 13, 14 years of training jujitsu have never met a student who actually learned effectively using that method, but yet every gym in the world seems to do that, right? Where well, this is why this is people still do it because you realize it's people that are inefficiently trained fighting against people who are inefficiently trained. One of my students likes to say, we are in the leather helmet phase of our sport. And, you know, even though we're all excited about it and we see all these top guys coming out, they're not performing jujitsu to the level that it should be being performed because we are not all engaged in the same type of practice. It's like if you were to go to a D1 wrestling program, there's going to be no difference between, you know, Kale Sanderson's practice or John Smith's practice. They're, they know the same thing and they're all doing the same physical work largely. Mm-hmm. So you're getting a more pure form of the sport, more emergent form of the sport. And we're just not there yet as a whole in our community. So yeah, absolutely. Everyone, everyone, I don't mean to be arrogant about it, but everyone learns the wrong way. Even I did. I learned the wrong way too. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely did. I remember my first class of jujitsu back in 2008 you know, I'd done a bit of research. I discovered the UFC and I thought, you know what? This BJJ thing seems like a martial art that would speak to me. And I went in and I experienced exactly what you described, where they basically gave me a cardio workout for about 20, 30 minutes. And then they, you know, had me repeat some actions that to this day, I don't remember. And then they basically had a bunch of bluebells beat the shit out of me (laughs) to, I guess, quote unquote, drive the point home. Right. And I mean, that's the funny thing is, I think in a lot of ways that's by design, right? Gyms do this because they believe that, well, the best way to demonstrate the power of jujitsu is to put that untrained person in there with a trained person and just let them go and show them how it works. Well, the best way to show the power of jiu-jitsu is to give someone an opportunity to learn it so they can see the effect their own body has over their opponents. That's what you want the student to do. You want them to be excited about engaging in such a way where they feel like they have control over the person because that's what they came in there for. You know, if they know what jiu-jitsu is, they're like, man, I, I want to learn this. And letting them know within the first week what it feels like and that through a task-focused game, you can start implementing these controls or these ideas that you have about what it's like to interact with another person, that's empowering. I mean, especially if you, you, know, if you enjoy the sensation. Yeah, yeah. We had a Nick Winkleman on the podcast a while ago. He's the author of The Language of Coaching. And what he talked about on that episode was very similar to what you're talking about here, which is to kind of get away from this prescriptive method of coaching where you just tell people what to do when you expect them to follow you like robots and more- you create a game environment and you give them cues 
that just helps the body figure out the right thing to do naturally. For sure. And that it just seems to be a much more intuitive and effective way to teach people the right way to move their body conceptually versus trying to get them to just effectively copy and paste into their brain what the coach is telling them to do. And that's never going to work. Well, it's because there is no, quote, right way to move your body. There's only an effective way to move your body. And each person effectively moves their body in different ways. A guy who is six feet tall and 180 pounds moves his body relatively differently than someone who's five foot six, 120 pounds. The physical constraints that they're dealing with are different. So the physical manifestations that emerge from these individual systems are going to be different. Like I even go against people and they talk about, quote, details. Like I don't even believe in details. Like everyone's detail for how they accomplish a thing is going to be based on their own individual constraints and even their, you know, their psychological constraints, their social constraints. It's all going to change the, the emergent quality of the behavior. And so we need a room that allows this freedom. I mean, I, I can't remember who said it, but I've been holding this in my mind for a long time. And they said that the coach only has two responsibilities when creating a practice. One, they need to teach what's invariant. And two, they need room for self-expression. And so with this ecological approach that we're using for skill acquisition, I feel that we're able to create that quality in our room where we are teaching invariants, but we are giving room for the student to express themselves. Could you just quickly explain exactly what we mean when we say the ecological approach? For sure. So... Ecology is a system, right? So the ecological system is the individual or the organism, you, the task, the thing that the organism is doing within an environment. And this ecological system is a precursor for behavior. So behavior is an emergent quality of the ecological system. So the individual task environment system. And so it's something that naturally emerges, like from, like I said, you performing tasks within the environment. And that's what ecology is. So the ecological approach is that if you give an individual a task within an environment and they start to interact through perception, action, coupling, through coordination, through attunement, behavior start, effective movement solutions or effective behavior start to emerge from this interaction. Got it, got it, got it. And maybe just a quick refresher as well. We did have a previous conversation with Dr. Rob Gray about the perception action coupling, but sure. just as a quick refresher for people who didn't catch that, do you want to give that a quick explanation so people know what we mean by that? For sure. So perception is just your ability to perceive something within your environment. Uh, action is just what you do in spite of that or as you perceive things, right? So you can imagine if I was in a room and I was walking around and I felt like sitting, my I would look for something that looks sittable and then I would take the action of sitting on it. That's perception action coupling uh, as minimally as I can describe it. Got it. Got it. Now, am I correct in understanding then that if we tie all of this together, it sounds like the big change that you're really suggesting is rather than being prescriptive and treating our students like robots, where we basically give them instructions to follow, you're kind of suggesting creating an environment where the right behavior just kind of emerges organically, right? You put some games in place that are designed to steer people to kind of come up with the right movements on their own. Is that sort of the right way to explain this? In a way, yes, it's simplified, but correct. I mean, that's how all movements have ever emerged. I mean, there's never been anything else other than that. Like you could think of the most complex, crazy jiu-jitsu movement that you can imagine in your head. And there was a time in history where that happened with no instruction. So if we understand that historically behaviors emerge, regardless how complex people argue they are, if they are a natural emergent quality of the task environment individual system, then why would we think that a new student could access this skill in any other way if that's how it was originally accessed? Yeah. Now, what a lot of, you know, gray-haired black belts will say is, well, this all sounds well and good, but hey, I watch those white belts and I know that they do everything wrong. So that's why I like to sit them down and walk them through the 10 proper steps to do an arm bar. You know, this is for a reason because I know they're going to make these mistakes and I want to cut that off at the gate. I mean, how would you counter that argument when you hear that? Well, that's to assume that they understand optimization, that they know exactly what is right. And I mean, think about it. If if you look at basketball in 1940, okay, they're dribbling like five-year-old children, right? And at the time, that was right. They had competitive games. But if LeBron James played one of those fools now, it would look ridiculous, right? So if we think we know a thing and a time, it's arrogant. I mean, you know, we need things to emerge on their own over time historically to see what truly is this idea of, quote, optimization. And so, yeah, for some, you know, you know, like you said, gray-haired old black belt to be like, no, this is the only right way to do it. He's just a fool. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I mean, you know as well as I do, There, we all battle with this. There is something about having to put on that black belt and get up in front of the room that kind of 
instills in you a a false sense of confidence and probably makes you feel like you know more than you do. And especially when you can go in there and you can just tune up all of the white belts, right? Yeah, it feels like you know what you're doing. But just because you're ahead of the people that you're training with who are more junior, that doesn't mean your method is optimal, right? And so I think that sometimes coaches, especially black belts, tend to be pretty overconfident in their methods just because their thought is, well, it worked for me and everyone else does it. So clearly this is the way to do it. But I think that there is that degree of arrogance that comes along with that. You know, the black belt is a, is a symbol and that symbol can get to your head if you let it. And I think that's an important thing to consider when it comes down to keeping an open mind to these new methods. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, everyone resists change, you know, like we don't teach moves like, and you wouldn't believe what my students can do. Like we don't teach I literally don't show them anything. I found a way to create practice where nothing has to be shown. The only things I explain are the tasks or the concepts behind how and why we're engaging. And my students can do very complex behaviors. Like I I keep bringing this kid up and I, I cannot wait for the world to see this kid. This kid named Noah, Noah Schaffner. He's a blue belt. He's been training for a year and eight months. And when I say this, I'm not kidding. I I can be attested to many people. He beats visiting black belts easily. Like it's not even difficult for him. And he's never learned to move and he's never drilled. He can wrestle, he can pass, he can back, he can sweep, he can submit. And he's never once practiced any of those moves in the traditional sense. And so, and there's a reason why we do it this way too. It's not just like, oh yeah, drilling works. And then this other thing works too. It's that no, what we want a skill to be is flexible and adaptable. And the way we acquire the skill will determine whether it's flexible or adaptable. So if we acquire skill in a process-oriented way, the skill is not robust and flexible. It's very rigid and very stereotypical. If a skill is allowed to emerge in its own based on a very variety or variability, then it's not as easily perturbed by changes in the environment. And the student generally has a better understanding of what's happening because they didn't learn it from me. They learned it from them, themselves. So self-discovery, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that bit of guidance here because something that I think a lot of beginners get misled about is this feeling that, you know, I can't do it the way that my coach taught me. So therefore I'm just not good at jujitsu, which is very much a fallacy, right? I mean, I remember being told from like beginner days that here's how you do a triangle choke. And if you can't do this, you're just not following the instructions correctly. And that doesn't take into account the fact that, look, we all have very different body types, right? I mean, I'm like five foot seven, five, eight, close to 200 pounds. I'm built like a dwarf from Lord of the Rings, right? My, my legs are short and really, really thick. There's a lot of moves I can do where I can capitalize on that body type, but a triangle choke is not one of those. Like even against a regular sized human being, I can barely close a triangle, even if they're letting me do it. It's just a body type thing. And by trying to follow the instructions for so long, all I really achieved rather than developing the skill was kind of just feeling bad about myself because I couldn't do what my coach wanted me to do because they weren't taking into account that I'm a different person from who they are. For sure. It's because they have no idea how to do their job. You have to realize that most teachers aren't teachers. They, they're they just business owners who call themselves teachers and coaches. They Coaching, communicating with others and helping others acquire skill is a skill itself. So these guys don't practice that. You know, they practice this strange form of business ownership egotism. Like it's it's wild. Like it it frustrates me so bad. I mean, I have a lot of visitors come into my school from local academies, people who've been training for 10 plus years, and they're so terrible at grappling that I almost feel I feel bad for them. It's like I want the other schools around me to not even call what they're doing jujitsu. Like I made a joke, they should call it cardio grappling or whatever. Because man, these instructors have no idea how to do their job. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, the interesting schism in like Krav Maga, right? Where, you know, people, yeah, yes, there are legit Krav schools out there where you can get realistic self-defense training, but there's like a 99% chance that the Krav school down the block is basically some variant of cardio kickboxing self-defense, right? It, 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 there is a schism there. Well, there's no objective measure for who can open a school and what they're teaching. It's just anyone can. So yeah. there's no mechanism to weed out the, the crap. Yeah. Yeah, And you bring up one of my favorite talking points in jujitsu. You know, you mentioned how a lot of these people, they're not really trained coaches. They're just business owners. I would go even further and say, they're not even business owners. They're just competitive grapplers who needed to find a way to pay the bills. And the easiest way to do that was to open a gym, right? I mean, I I would agree. Yeah. Most people in jujitsu, and this is an area where I think the youth of our sport still shows compared to some of the other sports 
there isn't really a coaching track. There's like this expectation that, well, if you're not an ace competitor, why should I listen to you, right? The idea being that, I just don't get it, but the idea being that in order to be a great coach, you must have been previously a great competitor. But the one thing that comes up repeatedly is like, these are very different skill acquisition tracks and one does not equate to the other. They're wildly different. I mean, like I had a five-year competition career. I broke my neck in 2008 and damaged my spinal cord. Like I had to stop. You know, uh, I just had three black belts win pants easily. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> it's crazy. John Danaher, he doesn't compete. He never competed once in his life. I competed more than John Danaher. You know what I mean? I was, I was at least had a purple belt competing at the world level, you know, but either way, it, it has nothing to do with my skill to coach. And it's just people want to feel good about their, whoever their like self, you know, their perceived superhero is, you know, oh my, my coach is a world champion, you know, but I, I want my students to say my coach made makes world champions. You know what I mean? So there's a difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So question for you here. I mean, we're talking about different ways that we can organize a class and I would be curious to get your feedback on, does this vary from a, a beginner versus an advanced student? Are there ways that you would introduce this model differently depending on the student's existing experience? Well, yes and no. So like I said, when you deal with new people, all you have to do is make sure the variability is generally low. Now, variability is a good thing. Okay. There's something that we know called the variability effect of practice. And this is the idea that through variability, the brain kind of stays in this novel state where it pays attention to everything. And it seems like it's when the person's experiencing it, it feels confusing and difficult. But for some reason, our mind likes that variation. And when variability of practice is uh, studied, that it shows that the information retention and transfer tests is superior to things that are repeated over and over and over again. So anyway, but so variability is a good thing, but typically you don't want too much. If variability is too high, it's too overwhelming. It'd be like lifting up a very heavy weight. Like if you wanted to start squatting, you don't put your, you know, 105% one rep max to start learning. That's too much. So you need to introduce a certain amount of challenge to the system. So yeah, for brand new people, low variability. And for people who are experienced, they tend to be the complete opposite. I mean, I'm talking high variability. We'll change task focus every 10 minutes. And we could be wildly different task focuses. We could go from starting in a submission to starting on the feet, playing first to score, you know, or even even more complex than that. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think kind of the, the point you're getting at here is there's no right or wrong answer to the difference between a beginner or an advanced student. It's all about basically managing that dial. So you're giving them just enough variability to keep them engaged in thinking, but not so much variability that they go into cognitive overload. Correct. I mean, it's like, yeah, yep. Awesome. That that makes a ton of sense. And that kind of aligns with just general life experience, I think. I mean, if you do anything repetitively enough, your brain eventually just goes on autopilot because, okay, I know the motion. I know that the next 10 reps that I do are going to be the same as the one I just did. So eventually your brain can kind of just turn off and you can just go on to autopilot. And a little bit of variability prevents that from happening, right? So I can see why that would be beneficial. I mean, your your brain literally turns off once it starts to be uncomfortable with what it's doing, they've done fMRI studies where activity goes down the more familiar you are with the thing. So we want to keep things novel. Novelty is a good thing. It's just about managing that novelty though. You know, you don't want things too novel because then it's just chaos. So there is, I think there is a happy medium. Got it. Got it. Now, something that we've discussed on the show before is this idea of interleaving where you basically shake up the training practice a bit so that you're not just doing the same thing over and over and over mm-hmm. again. I would say that this is probably a different approach from what most jujitsu gyms use, right? Most jujitsu gyms that I know, they'll be like, this week is guard week. And we're just going to show a whole bunch of slight variants of the, basically the same thing over and over again. For sure. I'd love to know over a, a longer window of time, like yeah. over weeks or months or quarters, how do you structure your programs? Do you guys use yeah. interleaving in any way? Oh, <laughs> 100% man. So our week goes like this top. And next week, bottom, top, bottom, top, bottom, top, and bottom. And we always go neutral pin, neutral pin, neutral pin. Okay. So like week one would be like, let's say top close guard. Next week two would be bottom close guard. Week three would be top mount. Week four would be bottom mount. And this is just an example. But here's the thing. In each class, right? So let's say we're on a week where we're working from the top of the mounted position. Halfway through the class, I'll switch to something we did three weeks before. So It'll be like, okay, we're working, you know, staying on top and holding your partner down from out of position. Or we're working, stay on top, hold your partner down and put one of the arms into a state of extension or contraction, right? So it'll be like something, some basic task like that. And then like I said, 20 minutes in, 25 minutes in, I'm like, all right, guys, now we're going to start on our partner's back. 
All right. Or I'll be like, okay, guys, we're going to have a belly up guard player and we have a standing passer. Standing passer get past bottom player's legs and try to achieve chest to chest contact. Go. So every day we play the whole game of jiu-jitsu, right? So no matter what the same, the primary task focus is, the primary intention of the practice, we interleave previous lessons within that hour window. And so this, this is called contextual interference. So it's what causes the variability effect. So when you break up the context and you interfere with a person's thinking, it reintroduces novelty. And so, uh, yeah, we use it heavily. Got it. Got it. Makes a ton of sense. Now, when a teacher is trying to deploy something like this, an argument I often hear against this kind of approach is, but it sounds like so much work, you know, and that kind of makes sense, right? Because the traditional method of three techniques a day, basically where the coach just pulls three techniques out of his ass and teaches them, that's easy. And I've heard this complaint about the reverse classroom model as well, which is, well, but how can a coach be reasonably expected to pay attention to all of their students and provide individual training? I just can't do it. I'm guessing that you've heard the same thing, right? Well, yeah, you can't. So first of all, a generalized approach goes a long way. Like you have to understand that most students in a room aren't going to be students for a long period of time. So this is something we have to understand to be true. Okay. Most students are going to, they want to exercise. They want to get away from their wife for an hour and they just want to do it twice a week. So a generalized approach is completely fine. You don't have to start getting specific with a student until years down the road. Really? I say two, three years in until we have to start touching on specificity. So, and also you don't need to hold hands. The body self-organizes around the task. So if you, if your practice is intelligently designed where the student knows what the demands of practice are and they know what their intention is and they know where to focus their attention, they can do trial and error on their own. Once they start learning how to learn, the coach basically doesn't really need to be there. And so the idea that this coach is an invisible hand over their student dictating every action, that's silly. That's silly. It's unnecessary. I barely speak to my basic students. I barely say anything to them. You know what I mean? The only time I reach in and correct is when they're not following the task goals. That's all. Because beginners will get chaotic. They will respond to their emotions. They will respond to their confusions and they'll start making up their own games. So I have to stop and be like, hey, you're not staying within the constraints of the situation. You know, try to refocus to try again. But yeah, no, I mean, there's, you know, you can't talk to everybody and no coach can talk to everybody. <laughs> I mean, there's, we would need 30 coaches, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, a question I've got for you about something you mentioned earlier about how you barely teach moves. You're not the only person I've heard talk about that. I mean, I know Chris Paynes is, um, is very big into that. There's a lot of instructors now who are moving more towards the approach that you're espousing, but what does the class look like? I mean, for, I think someone who follows the traditional model to say, I run a class without teaching moves sounds <laughs> like it should be just impossible. I mean, isn't there some point which you've got to actually sit people down and say, okay, here's, here are the actual steps for this technique. Or do you, just skirt that entirely and just let everything emerge organically. No, it, it's, it, there's, first of all, there, there are no steps to a move. They're zero. Like the whole step-by-step process is silly, right? The only time a step-by-step process is even discussed is if it's an invariant property of the exchange, right? So there is a general, let's say there's a generalized approach to guard passing, right? So the generalized approach to guard passing is stay on top, hold your partner down, segment the periphery and gain access to center mass. So every guard pass you've ever heard of or ever seen follows that process. They're making choices and taking action to stay on top and hold their partner down. And they're trying to segment the periphery and then applying weight to center mass to hold it still. Okay. So moves emerge from that interaction. So for example, a knee cut emerged as a a movement during segmentation where somebody was creating a bodily shape where they went in between their partner's knees to segment the body and gain access to center mass quote unquote Toriando pass, it was the opposite. It was a series of movements that was undertaken while the top player was holding their partner down, staying on top, segmenting the legs to the outside so they could gain access to their partner's hips and shoulders and and, uh, gain access to center mass. So this idea is that if you teach the process, the foundational process by which all guard passes occur, guard passes start to emerge. I haven't taught a single guard pass in six years, not one. And all of my black belts pass everyone's guard that they touch. 
So this is an interesting realization that I've had, I think, especially as I get older. I find myself now in a situation where I can barely recall any jujitsu techniques at all. And I find this kind of embarrassing sometimes because people will say things like, well, Steve, how do you do this particular technique? And I have to say, like, I don't really know. All I know is that I know how to move in the right way in the moment and the good thing happens, (laughs) right? I find this approach of trying to prescribe these 10 invariable steps of how to do a move is not really that productive because like you you kind of implied earlier, jujitsu is not an invariable sport. It's a very variable sport, right? You've got this person training with you who is trying to do everything they can to screw up your game and to win. And you have no control over what they're going to choose to do. There's massive variability. This is not gymnastics where your goal is to execute a perfect routine over and over again. There is massive variability in fight sports. And so Trying to duplicate techniques the way that you saw it on the DVD, that's just not a good approach to skill acquisition because that never happens in the wild. Well, it doesn't even happen for the person doing the technique they're putting on the DVD. Yeah. No no technique that any student has shown on DVD have they done the same way twice ever because it, it can't. Even a slight variation in the elbow angle or the shoulder angle or the way they apply weight. See, a long time ago, there was a guy named Nikolai Bernstein who came up with this thing called the degrees of freedom problem. And it was that how we saw that this was a thing and then coined it as the degrees of freedom problem is he was studying blacksmiths and he found out something really strange. So novice blacksmiths were very consistent in their swing, very consistent. There was almost no variability, but very inconsistent in their conclusion. Whereas elite blacksmiths were at the highest level of their abilities, had tons of variation within their swing, but, but their conclusion was very consistent. So he said, how does, how is it possible that the swing variability, even though it, 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 it was, uh, there was lots of it, but they still had the same conclusion. So it's this idea that the body has this noise in the system based on how many different ways the arm can articulate to accomplish the task. And elite level people don't, this noise doesn't bother them. They don't care where their arm is. They have some way to self-organize around what their conclusion is. So this variation is accepted and allowed to exist within the system. And so to try to erase this variability by forcing a student to a step-by-step stereotypical process, you take away the beauty of variation. You take away the thing that's going to happen naturally anyway. No two instances in anyone's life are ever the same. And even in sport, it's the same thing. And so we have to, we have to understand that this is true about the human movement system and we have to allow it to exist and we have to take it into account when creating practices. Well, let me ask you a follow-up here then. How do you feel about really rigid testing systems? Because I was just talking to someone the other day who was telling me that, okay, and before I'm going to give out a belt, I'm going to make the person demonstrate that they can perfectly execute these 100 techniques and it's all documented (laughs) and written down. Do you think there's a place for that or is that just kind of steering in the wrong direction? It's completely steering in the wrong direction. I mean, this whole obsession with rank is just, it's beyond me. Like, I don't know what people are trying to do. It's not objective anyway. Why do you need to know a certain set of techniques, right? Why can't we just see, is this person an effective grappler? There's no ranks in wrestling. You know what I mean? Like, why, why do we need ranks here? And, and why are we obsessed over it? I mean, of course, I give ranks. Don't get me wrong. But our ranks are based on performance. It's not based on things you remember. You know what I mean? So I don't know why people want to do this. I think maybe they want to control their environment too much or they want to make their, they want to solidify their, their space in the coaching world so they feel like they have a reason to get up in the morning. I, I don't know. Like, uh, to me, it's just, um, it really does a disservice to the student and it's, it's, it's dishonest and disingenuous. Yeah. This is something I've observed a lot of coaches do. And frankly, even coaches that I really like, who I think generally do a pretty good job, but I've seen them all make this mistake where students, even very experienced students will start to get creative and they'll start to figure out things that work for themselves. And then the coach will try to shut it down because yeah. they'll be like, well, look, yeah, sure. Maybe you figured out a way to make it work. But I don't think you should do that technique because that's not how Helio taught us to do it, right? You know, (laughs) sure, you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, you might be winning tournaments with it, but that's not actual jujitsu the way that the masters defined it, right? Which is a a totally bullshit made up goal that has no value, right? Right. Either it works or it doesn't. It's we tell our students this rightness is is a scale. Okay, at the bare minimum, you have to be effective. And then the more consistently you can be effective at a low energy cost in a timely manner, you start transitioning to the other side of it, which we call efficient. So there's this gap that you can exist in and still be right. Uh, and I think, you know, creativity is a beautiful thing. I mean, because this is how new movement patterns emerge, right? So, you know, we need to let our students do this. I think a lot of coaches have this ego where they want to always be the coach. Now, I don't have this ego because like I tell my students, man, be as creative as you want, but I'm going to fuck you up and you until you beat me. 
So, you know, and you can be whoever you want, you know, be as a, you know, be whoever you want, but I'm never going to stop you, but your goal is to beat me. Your goal is to rise above me. And so I think a lot of coaches just don't, they don't, they don't want that to, to be the case. Now, a lot of people are going to listen to this and they're probably going to say, Hey, this all sounds awesome. I want to start putting this into practice. The problem is my coach is a six stripe black belt from Rio who believes strongly in traditional methods and he's not going to listen to anything I say. What do you do if you're that student and you train in a gym that is actively against methods like this? I mean, I guess, I guess the obvious answer is you can change gyms, but sometimes (laughs) for a lot of reasons that might not be realistic, right? So, I mean, what do you do if you are the kind of the black sheep in the family and you're the only one who believes in these methods? Okay. You take your couch out of your living room, buy some mats and get four of your cool friends to come over and train with you and do it yourself. I mean, the thing is, is you don't need some jujitsu Jesus you know, who runs a gym telling you what to do. If, if you really want to learn this yourself, you can learn this yourself. I mean, I haven't been coached by a coach since 2013 and I've completely changed my perspective and paradigm. The things I can do now in my own personal jujitsu far exceed what I could do then. And most of them were developed through my own methodology, things that I discovered by myself. And so what I, another reason I want to do these podcasts, other than of course, to get our school some exposure and get people to come train with us is to give the students their power back. Like you can do this yourself, man. You know, you got to do some education. You got to do the hard reading. But, you know, once you, you know, you understand the method, you now have access to true skill acquisition and you don't need to pay fealty to some, you know, school owner lord who's trying to control you and make you do things their way. Yeah. And and I think there is a benefit that probably school owners don't see to using this approach as well, which is that it is I know that as a, as a black belt, it often feels like, okay, you're expected to know everything and be able to do everything and be able to answer everything and be able to beat everyone on the mats. But that's not a realistic or even healthy expectation. And as the black belt in the room, it's very liberating when you realize that you're not expected to be perfect, right? The students can take ownership of their own learning journey. You're there to facilitate. Like you said, you're there to be a guide, but you're not necessarily there to be the font of knowledge who has all of the answers. And it's very liberating when you can accept that and realize that, okay, I like the, you know, I'm not the boss of these people. They're all grown adults. They all can take care of their own journey. I'm just here to be the guide, to be the coach. I find that that can take a lot of stress off your shoulders when you accept that mindset. Well, yeah. I mean, if that's what your goal is, I mean, my goal is just to help people learn jujitsu. So I'm going to do that in the best way possible. I'm going to keep reading and researching and figure out how to do it. Uh, So far, so good. I think I have a, a strong method and a good way to do that. But that's, that's my concern, right? So when you open a school, I mean, I don't know how people can take people's money and not do their job. You know, like if, if I want to get my computer fixed and I drop it off at Geek Squad to fix my computer and I get it back and you messed it up, I'm not going to pay you any money. But, you know, students are willing to pay hundreds of dollars for years at a time to be told to run around and trip up and down the mat and have no real jujitsu. And then they do this for 16 years because they, you know, listen to the whole traditional model and they come into my school and get trounced by a blue belt who's been training for a year. That's terrible. So yeah, man, I want to save people from that horrible, horrible. You know, it's interesting you bring this up. I'm pretty sure I've brought this up about a hundred times on the podcast recently, but I'm going to do it again because it's pretty near and dear to my heart. I hate that shrimp down the mat drill. And the bump, you know, the, the big bump explosions, because I was, that's how I quote unquote warmed up in jujitsu for basically my entire career. And as a result, I didn't realize until around brown or maybe even black belt that I sucked at shrimping and I sucked at bumping because the way that you do it during a warm up and a drill is very different from the way you do it in a live role, right? Oh. If your instructor tells you, Hey, you got to shrimp down the mat. You're going to be doing these big, explosive, long shrimps because your goal is you've got to cover distance, right? You've got to get your ass down the mat. That's not how you actually shrimp effectively in a real fight. If you do big, explosive movements, you create big, explosive openings for your opponent. So good shrimping is often much more controlled than what you do during the drill. But forget the problem even I'm here you talk about it now is you're focused on your own movement. Your movement is only relative to who and what you're doing it against. So a quote shrimp isn't even a thing, right? I don't even know. I'm, I don't, I can't tell you the last time I showed somebody a shrimp, 2009, maybe like, I mean, how people remove themselves from underneath a weighted player is to control inside position is to know how to utilize their frames to create space for movement. And so the shrimping is nothing. All right. Teaching people what it means to structure yourself in what we would call inside position for the purpose of space creation and movement is the skill. The shrimp is just what it looks like, you know? Yeah. So it's a completely ineffective way to teach somebody emotion because it's called decoupled, 
Okay, so any something that is not linked by perception and action is a decoupled skill, meaning it was not developed in the situation under which it would be used. Okay, it's it's not quote representative of the situation in which it, it needs to be formed. Yeah, absolutely. Now, for the people out there listening to this, I'm sure that there's going to be some black belts who decide, or maybe they've already decided and they just don't know how to do it, that they want to start implementing some of these practices into their gym. And I would love to know, okay, if you're if you're on board with this idea, but you don't even know where to start, you know, maybe you've got an existing gym or an existing practice, what are the first big wins that you could start implementing to really start putting together this approach in play? I mean, I'm going to tell you guys the truth. This is, this is hard work. <laughs> like, I've been working at this for eight years. I mean, I have read 20 books easily. And not only that, is some of this material is still in the academic phase. So trying to get through these technical articles is not easy. And then not, not to mention, I now have to try to apply it. And I have to use trial and error just like you do when you're learning jujitsu. And so the coaches who are listening to these podcasts and trying to find some magic bullet, buddy, you're not going to find it. You're going to have to do the work just like I did. Or you can contact me and I can give you a shortcut. But <laughs> I mean, no, I'm being serious. I mean, I, my phone has been going nuts. Like I have been call after call, Instagram message, Instagram message. And I try to interact with everyone that I can. You know, I believe in the concept of mutual benefit. So I'm trying to increase the standards under which practices utilize in our community. So, you know, if you really need help and you want to know the deal, contact me, man. I'm, I'm talking to everyone about this thing. And the truth is, is that's really what I want to do. I want to be a coach's coach. Like I want to be at the forefront of this movement and I want to help people get rid of some of these, you know, psychological demons they have about why this, you know, isn't working, isn't right. And I don't want them to listen to Reddit and all these other silly ass places that tell people that, you know, they really know what's going on and they actually don't. So yeah, man, I mean, I can, I can recommend books if you want, but again, you're going to have to educate yourself in order to utilize this, this approach. Yeah. I mean, I would love that. I would say, why don't we recommend some resources that you found that are really good? And also let's, you know, let's plug how people can contact you. I'd love to know how uh, people can get in touch if they do want to work with you or if they've just got questions they need to field. Well, for sure. I mean, you can always contact me at greg at standardjitsu.com. That's my email. My Facebook is at GD Souders or at Standard Jiu Jitsu. I control everything. So you can, you can reach out to me. Uh, the number on my website is mine. So contact me, text me, call me. I don't care. I, you know, I do what I can to, to, to help people around me. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to start learning what the ecological approach is. There is a new book that just came out called An Introduction to Ecological Psychology. I actually just picked it up. A buddy of mine, Scott Savewright from the Primal MMA podcast, who was the first guy to actually reach out to me and put me on. He introduced me to this book, even though I, have, I think I have a generally good understanding of the ecological approach, but it's good. Uh, you should check it out. I just picked it up. You can also, the guy you had on there, Rob Gray, that you had on your show, this guy is not known enough and he needs to be known. He's an, he's an amazing professor at Arizona State University and he just gives out tons of free information on the ecological approach. He does article reviews and he really goes out of his way to help people try to understand this through his YouTube channel. So, you know, it's it's academic and it's tough to get through, but it's worth it. And so that's, that's a nice starting point. And I, I, I've got more, but those, those are good. Awesome. Yeah. Rob Gray is a guy I definitely recommend people check out if they haven't. Uh, he's actually got a new book out called How We Learn to Move, which is probably, I'm going to guess, a, yeah, an amazing fantastic. resource. We've actually been yeah. talking about getting him back onto the podcast again uh, at some point to go over that material. But yeah, he's also got a great podcast. And again, I'll put all of the links to all of this in the show notes. So if you are listening and you're overwhelmed by all of the resources being thrown at you, just pop open the show notes. It'll have the link to Greg, the link to all of these resources, the link to Rob Gray stuff, and hopefully that'll be helpful. But Greg, man, beyond that, any other things that you recommend, like uh, anything you wanted to get into here that we didn't talk about today, which you think would be quick wins? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of stuff, actually. I feel like we just kind of philosophize about the shitty nature of jiu-jitsu politics and coaching. I really don't, I don't think we got into the specifics too much. I mean, the kind of thing that I'm really trying to share is that this idea is that jiu-jitsu is not a move-based activity. Jiu-jitsu is a philosophy that guides the grappling art that we do. Okay, so grappling is the activity. Jiu-jitsu is the philosophy. And then our practice should represent this. The way that we approach practice is not by teaching moves, but by teaching foundational exchanges or invariant exchanges that happen when anyone touches another body. And trying to get a good technical understanding of what that is, is I think our job as coaches. Like We have to be masters of our subject matter. And our subject matter has to be something beyond a collection of moves. It has to be an understanding how two bodies interact, both physically and psychologically, so that we can understand exactly what's happening. 
Because if we understand this, then it becomes easier to design practice. Just as if you were to teach someone to grow muscle, you have to understand how hypertrophy works. And if we don't understand that, then growing muscle just becomes an exercise in futility, just as teaching jitsu would be if you don't understand how two bodies interact in our sport. And I think largely they don't. Like even watching pans this weekend, I was, I was surprised at how poor everyone's guard passing is, for example, or even the utilization of their guard at the black belt level. It's, it's tremendous. And so, you know, we owe our community a, a greater service at really understanding what the hell we're talking about and doing. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that most coaches out there and most gym owners would probably benefit from putting at least a bit of time and attention into developing their actual coaching skills, right? I mean, I know how much time and attention jujitsu people put into things like tape study and buying and reviewing and trying to process and absorb instructional material. But at the end of the day, coaching is a skill and it needs to be absorbed and learned like a skill. And I would suggest that spending some time specifically studying the art of coaching, even coaching from other sports, in fact, maybe particularly coaching from other sports because they're more developed, probably going to be one of the best things you can do for your gym if you're an instructor. No, I, I completely agree. And, um, and hopefully I can I can start to get more platforms to speak on. I, I'm, we're trying to develop stuff now. We're, we're working in-house trying to do little videos and little guides, not on technique, uh, of course, but on the process of coaching and how to better help students uh, acquire skills and increase motor performance. I mean, because that's really what we want to do at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, this has very much been kind of a, a staple of how we structured this product, right? I mean, we are famously audio only. We've really never produced and published a quote unquote video instructional. And that's very much by design because the one thing that I love about audio as a medium is you have to think and explain things, right? I, I can't just show a video of myself doing a knee cut pass and say, see everybody copy that. Just do it. Like I did it right. <laughs> if I'm going to, if I'm going to explain something through audio, I have to explain it in such a way that the other person can reassemble the whole idea in their own brain, right? They can't, sure. they can't just watch what I do and copy and duplicate it. And so I find that when it comes to conceptual thinking, audio is just a beautiful medium for teaching people. So that, that's why we do things this way, right? I love new age approaches like this that just uh, take a, a more nuanced approach to teaching rather than just yet another jujitsu instructional on some technique that you'll probably honestly never remember or apply. Well, for sure. And I think we need to take an even more radical approach to how we're looking at the physics of jujitsu themselves and actually what's happening and distilling things down to their most fundamental engagements. I mean, like, for example, uh, guard work can be boiled down into making and maintaining connections for the purpose of controlling distance for the purpose of destabilization. So everything you've ever seen emerge from a guarded situation has those three, those three foundations in mind. So if your guard, or excuse me, with your guard, if you can't make and maintain connections for the purpose of controlling distance and destabilization, and you don't know what that means, then you don't have a true guard skill. If your guard is made up of barren bolos and kisses of the dragons, then even though you can do them, this doesn't mean you understand guard work. Like, you know, like the beauty of the way we acquire skill is I can look at one of my blue belts and I can be like, you see that move right there that you saw on that DVD, the kiss of the dragon? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, go do that. And they'll do it immediately, you know? And the reason is they understand how to make and maintain connections for the purpose of controlling distance and destabilization. And they understand these as concepts, not as step-by-step -step processes. So they understand the function of their tools as they're engaging with their opponent. And this is something that I think our community is not doing well. I mean, like, for example, we talk about the poor guard work that you see even at the black belt level. The guard is by nature a defensive structure. And so what you do see emerge well is strong defensive guard work. Because even if two people know nothing about guard work, because they're receiving pressure from the top player, it's going to self-organize around preventing chest to chest or chest to back contact. And it's going to organize around not letting people pass your legs. But when you want to take a defensive structure and you want to reorient it, to be a progressive structure where now you can manipulate the physics of your opponent's body, this is something that's not well understood. You know, like you don't see it happen when they when you see that, oh, this guy's a good leg locker. No, man, he's only a good leg locker because the top guy has no idea how to deal with it. And he's so afraid that he's falling down and giving people their legs. So anyway, this is something that I, need, I think needs to be fixed too. Awesome. Well, a lot of work to be done, but man, Greg, thanks so much for dropping all of these ideas. I really appreciate it. And, and like I said, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to reach out to you or check out these resources. So I will uh, load up the show notes, 
make it easy for everyone to grab those. As always, also in the show notes, I'll drop a link to BJJ Mental Models Premium. Uh, We talked about this a bit, but the approach that I always love is concepts, audio, storytelling as a medium. One of my favorite ways to teach jujitsu. That's what BJJ Mental Models Premium is all about. We've got far more structured course style conversations on there. Hundreds of people already subscribed. Great service. Beyond just the course material, we've also got our amazing review and coaching service. You get unlimited access to that. It's a great deal. So please do check it out. First week is free. BJJMentalModels.com if you haven't already gone there to get it. Again, that's BJJMentalModels.com. And I'll also, like I said, toss that link in the show notes. But Greg, thanks a lot, man. This was a fantastic chat. Loved it. Loved the ideas. And man, I'm looking forward to seeing what you produce next. Oh, for sure, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the exposure and hopefully you both benefit from this conversation. No worries, man. And thanks to everyone else listening. Greatly appreciate your time and attention as well. And we'll talk to you next week. See you soon.